With great power comes great responsibility. Compromise where you can. Where you can't, don't. Even if everyone is telling you that something wrong is something right. Even if the whole world is telling you to move. It is your duty to plant yourself like a tree. Look them in the eye and say no. You move. Never step onto the battlefield of ideas unprepared. Before you enter the fray, you need a plan. And there's no better place to get one than right here on Tactics with host Caleb Colquitt. The Situation Room goes live now on News Radio 1440. Well, good evening, everybody, and thank you so much for being with us here on Tactics, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. Thank you so much for being with us here on the program. We certainly do appreciate it. Any time that you can give us out of your busy day, we are thankful that you choose to make us a part of your day. And uh, we actually have a very full show, and that's part of the reason that we're getting started a little late here. We've got a ton of content, but it's all really good stuff, and it's all very important stuff because of what is going on right here in the state of Alabama. Uh, but before we get to that, I did want to mention, yes, it is April 1st, and you may think, oh, he's going to be talking about April Fool's Day. No, I'm not. I mean, there's nothing wrong with April Fool's Day per se, and I have to say I did really enjoy the April's full prank that Yellowhammer News pulled on us with trying to say, hey, look at Auburn's new field, because of course we hired the coach from Boise State and they showed a Photoshop picture of what Auburn's st stadium would look like with a blue field. Um, yeah, that, that was a solid April Fool's Day prank, so I'll give props to Yellowhammer News on that one. But actually, I'm talking about something else sports-related. It is, of course... One of the greatest days in sports every year, opening day of Major League Baseball. Now, it was a little less great for me because Braves lost in heartbreaking fashion in extra innings to the Phillies, and I freaking hate the Phillies. So, you know, I get it. It's it's not, you can't win every opening day, I understand. But, you know, it would have been really nice to see the Braves take home that W, but you know, great game all the way around. Really looking forward to having an actual full season of baseball because last season I couldn't say, yeah, we lost opening day, but it's a long season. Last year we only had 60 games, so it wasn't really that long a season. But this year we actually are going to have a full season. I'm really ecstatic about that. I would love to go to see them uh, play some games this year. Because of the cost, I can't do that a whole lot, but love to get down to Atlanta. That's the only reason I ever want to go to Atlanta, by the way is to see a Braves game. Pretty much any other reason, I, I wouldn't have any need to go to Atlanta, but going to a Braves game, definitely a good excuse for that. But like I said, we have a lot going on here in the state of Alabama, and there is so much to talk about. I'm sure that a lot of you have heard, even if you're not somebody that follows politics real closely, which if you are, it's a little weird that you're watching my show. I'm glad you're here. But, you know, most of you kind of keep your ear to the ground and uh, because of that, I'm pretty sure that most of you have heard about this transgender bill that has passed the Senate, it has passed the House, and so, uh, or I, I believe that has happened. Uh, so we're going to see it probably enacted, I would guess, pretty soon. I, I, it faces some hurdles, and there's going to be media backlash, and because of that, some politicians are a little bit hesitant to support it, but especially in this state, I can't really see us being able to move forward without this bill being passed. But it's important to be able to make the argument, because that's what we do at Tactics. We teach you tactics about how to win arguments, how to influence people, that kind of thing, because that's really the point of the show. 
is to not necessarily convince the people watching, but to be able to tell you how to convince people that you know in your life, your friends and neighbors, that kind of thing. Uh, it's important to understand what the bill actually does, because there's been a lot of misinformation really on both sides about this. So I'm not I'm not even necessarily casting all of that to the left, even though I would say the majority of it has come from the left. There's some information on what this bill does, and, and people just don't understand all of it. So basically, what this bill does is it bans hormone therapy. It bans puberty blockers, which is a specific form of hormone therapy. So uh, th there's a few different nuances there. First of all, of course, you know that it, there are some other hormones that play a pretty significant role in this, but the, the bare bones basic, the, the dummy's guide to this would be that when somebody is about to go through puberty, there are certain hormones that your body starts producing in men, primarily testosterone, even though there are others and in women, primarily estrogen and puberty blockers helps block some of those added hormones that help their body transition from the somewhat androgynous younger period into an adolescent body, which, you know, women start developing female bodies, men start developing male bodies. I know that uh, this seems like basic stuff that we've known since kindergarten, but no, I actually do have to explain this because of the world that we're living in now. But these drugs actually block that process and stop it from happening. So, for example, in a, a female, they can give these hormone blockers and she won't develop a man's body because her body can't do that, but she will not develop a female body. She'll basically remain the somewhat androgynous pre-adolescent that she is before she took the puberty blockers. And the same thing goes for men. So you won't develop body hair. You won't develop, in, in the case of women, breast. In the case of men, your, your muscle mass won't develop as much. Your skeleton won't develop. Because uh, it actually does create a, a change in your skeletal structure to a degree as well. And so there's a lot of different things in this, a lot of moving parts, but that's the long and short of it. And it would also ban gender change surgery. So if you're going to uh, undergo a transition surgery, whether you are going to lop off your organ and create a, a fake vagina or you're going to create a, a pseudo phallus, uh, either one of those things you won't be able to do that as a minor. And that's an important thing to note too. This is only true for people under the age of 19. That's the only kind of people this ban prohibits. Now, personally, I don't necessarily think it should go to 19. I think it should be age of majority, 18. But I would still support this bill either way. I mean, the, the one more year thing I don't think is, is insanely ridiculous. Uh, I would, if I were a member of the House or the Senate, I would propose an amendment to make the age 18. And that's not because I want an 18-year-old to do it. It's just because I think that at 18, you've reached the age of majority. If you can do it as an adult, I mean, I think it's a stupid idea, but you are not supposed to be protected by the government from your own stupidity. If, if you can find a doctor willing to do it and you're willing to do it, then at 18, I think that's correct. And, and I, by the way, hold exactly the same stance with firearms, with alcohol, with tobacco, all of that. I think everything should be the age of majority. And if we're going to make it 21 or 19 or whatever, then we need to raise the voting age. I think that all those things should be one age. But regardless, uh, that, that's a, a small quibble from my part. But nonetheless, I do think that it's overall a really good bill and one that needs to pass. But another thing to note is about what this bill does is it does not do anything for social transitioning or psychological treatment. And this is important, too, because a lot of people are trying to uh, cast this in the sense that this is going to prevent uh, 
psychologists, medical professionals, from giving advice, from talking to children that they believe are transgender and sort of helping them through that. That's not the case. That's not the case at all. Uh, it does say that they can't go through the hormonal and physical part of that change. It, it does do that, and, and it should do that. But as far as like going to a counselor, going to a psychologist, even a psychologist that thinks they really are a girl if they say they're a girl or vice versa, even that is not banned. All this does is specifically block the irreversible physical portion of transitioning. So that's really all this does. And so really, they're making this into a big deal, but I think it's kind of the bare bones basics. I think you could make a good case, and I would even probably support legislation that would stop a a, a psychologist or some from transitioning because of the the mental problems that can cause can be caused from it. But at the very least, we ought to be banning just the physical side of it, and that's exactly what this bill does. And and here's the reason that I say that there are a lot of risk involved. I mean, a lot of risk involved. When it comes to transgenderism now we'll talk about the philosophical and the spiritual connotations and the rationale behind opposing transgenderism a little bit later in the program but right now we're going to stay very technical we're going to stay very medical and by the way we've got an interview with a actual doctor who knows a lot more about this stuff than i do dr uh, patrick lampert who's going to be coming on a little bit later in the program but for now i'm just going to kind of walk you through some of the known literature on this so the risks are very high for transgender individuals going through the transition process. And that's one of the reasons that we're saying with this bill, look, if you want to transition, okay, fine. We're not going to stop you, but you have to wait until you're 18. Or in this case, 19. I would have said 18, but the bill says 19. You have to wait until you're 19 years old to make this decision. And by the way, this is true for things like getting a tattoo. This is true for things like consuming alcohol or uh, or, or tobacco. I mean, all of these things are true. And the reason for that is we understand that when you are a minor, you're not fully responsible for your own actions. You haven't attained a level of maturity to be able to handle a decision like that. And this is no different. You know, binge drinking is a really stupid thing to do that could kill you. But the government's not going to stop you from doing it. But it is going to make you wait until you're 21 to be able to do it legally. And this is sort of the same thing. It's a different process when we're dealing with minors specifically. So ultimately, that's what this comes down to. And this is part of the reason that we are so cautious about it. If you take a look at this, this is from NBC News. Study finds health risk for transgender women on hormone therapy. And, and this is just one example of a lot of the risk that are involved here. The study found that transgender women who are assigned male sex at birth, in other words, a, a guy who thinks he's a lady and takes hormones to make his body look more like a woman's body, were twice as likely as cisgender men, in other words, a normal man, or women to have the blood clot condition ve uh, venous thrombo... Boy, I'm really going to have a hard time with all the uh, medical terminology in the show tonight, but uh, uh, venous... Thromb thrombonalism, I think is it, uh, and transgender women on hormone therapy were found to be 80 to 90% more likely to have a stroke or heart attack than cisgendered women. Now, think about that. 80 to 90% as likely to have a stroke or heart attack and twice, uh, twice as likely to have a blood clot. And by the way, 
I had blood clots when I was on chemotherapy. I had four PE blood clots in my lungs. That's no fun. And it can cause serious health problems, including death. And so the fact that you're twice as likely to get blood clots from these things, the fact that you are 80 to 90% more likely to have a heart attack or stroke, I mean, that's not a minor thing. There are serious health risks, and the left doesn't want us to talk about this, but there are serious health risks in going through these medical procedures. Now, if no medical procedure goes through, you know, and they have psychological problems, which if, if they're involved in gender dysphoria, and I would argue anybody that's wanting to cut off body parts and mutilate themselves is having some pretty serious psychological problems. But keep in mind that at least in that case, you're not doing any physical damage to your body. What these transition treatments do compound that. And remember also that the study that NBC was referencing was only conducted on adults. It only had to do with people who transitioned over the age of 18. It specifically says that in the article. And so if those are the health complications for a person that is going through this after their body has already gone through puberty, what do you think the health complications are going to be for someone whose body was actually medically and from a, a drug perspective, it was a drug-induced stoppage of puberty? a process that your body would have naturally gone through had you not stopped it. Well, I mean, common sense would tell you that doing so would actually make those side effects even worse. And so there are serious health complications to this. This is not a, uh, you know, we, we've talked a lot about the social issues and, and things like homosexuality and that kind of thing. And there are health risks with, involved with that as well. But this is insanely high. And so the left acting as though they're just the compassionate ones that care about these kids. No, allowing them to go through this process, considering that that's the level of risk that they're dealing with, that's not caring about kids. This bill is put in place specifically to protect them. Another example of this, you can look in uh, this article from BMJ, which, by the way, is one of the oldest medical journals in the world. It's over 180 years old. It's based out of the UK. They did a study on this, and you'll see results of the person time in this cohort, and, and it goes on, and there's a lot of medical mumbo-jumbo, but we'll skip ahead. Um, 15 cases of invasive breast cancer, breast cancer now, were identified. This was 46-fold higher than in cisgender men but lower than cisgender women. Now, granted, and I, I don't want to be somebody that breaks my own rules here, we have to consider actual risk versus relative risk. And so the fact that men are naturally very at very low risk for breast cancer means that a 46 times higher chance of breast cancer is still lower than the average woman, but that still means that you're 46 times more likely to get this cancer. Now, you're at a low absolute risk, which means that even 46 times higher than original when your risk originally was so low means that it's, it's still, you know, uncommon. But as we just saw, there's also insanely high risk, and, and those really are high risk of things like stroke and heart attack. And when we're talking about several different kinds of cancers, pumping a male body full of estrogen like that in an, in an attempt to try to force his body to grow boobs for him, 
And keep in mind that all cancer is, it's a uh, metastasized cell that has mutated into growing too quickly, growing more than it's supposed to, and constantly dividing as opposed to doing the work that a cell is supposed to do. It really should come as no surprise that cancer is a significant risk in a process that is specifically designed to grow that part of your body. It's basically trying to artificially create something that your body was never intended to create. And so when it does that, especially in the short amount of time that these artificial hormones would do, you're going to see higher risk and things like that. And I could go through a massive laundry list of other risks that look at that, that are caused by this. Mayo Clinic had a really comprehensive one that showed a lot of it. But the point is, there are really high serious risk to all of this. And the idea that the state doesn't have a vested interest in protecting children from this is just ridiculous. You know, I'm, I tend to be pretty libertarian on these things. I, if you, if you want to do something dumb, that's your business. I don't want to stop you. But the thing is, minors are a different story because they're not of the age of majority yet. And while I totally agree that parents in most cases should be able to make decisions for their kid, there are certain times where that is simply not the case when it would actually cause harm to the child. And so this is one of those very rare exceptions. But most doctors that look through this literature do agree that the truth is that there's just very little data. And part of the reason for that is when you're dealing with transgender people, even though there's been a massive uptick in that population, it's still a very tiny sliver of the population. Last I saw, I think it's like 0.3% of the entire American population considers themselves trans. And so it's not much different in other countries. And so because you're dealing with so few people to begin with, it's hard to do comprehensive studies on a population that tiny and that spread out. And so because of that, they have a hard time tracking data on these people. But we're going to go over the data that we have tonight. But most doctors on both sides of this argument agree that there's just not much data. There haven't been that many studies done on that uh, on this. And because of that, it's really hard to pinpoint a lot of these things. But the data that we do have, and some of it I just showed you, the initial data looks really bad. The initial data looks like when you pump a body full of hormones and, and do so uh, in a way that is artificially augmenting you, that tends to be a very bad thing for your body. It, it tends to not bode well for you when you do something like that. And here's the crazy thing about this. You might think, and, and advocates of this, uh, advocates against this bill certainly say this, advocates of the trans movement will say this, but it's, it's going to be something that, yes, there are risks, but in the long run, the risk outweigh, or the, the rewards outweigh the risk. Well, considering how high the risk is, that's a very high bar to clear. However, that's actually not true. So the risk apparently are not offset by the rewards. In fact, there are no rewards so far as we can tell, because one of the most common arguments on this is there's a very high suicide rate within the trans community. And there is. Both sides agree on that. But they'll say, because their suicide rate is so high, one of the things that we can do to bring down that suicide rate is to decrease their gender dysphoria and have them have a body that at least somewhat resembles the body that they think that they are. The only problem with that is the data simply does not back that up. 
Let's go ahead and look at this. This was a uh, some of the data collected by one of the most comprehensive follow-up studies on trans people ever. It looked at trans people 15 to 20 years after their transition, and it measured their rates of different things like mortality because of suicide, that kind of thing. And you'll notice there that the rate uh, is about 2.7. That's the number of cases. Well, the crazy thing is, that's the rate before people transition. And this study was looking at people after they transitioned. Which would mean what? That going through the transition surgery actually doesn't decrease your rates of suicide. You would see exactly the same rates of suicide before the surgery as you do after the surgery. And so it doesn't take a rocket scientist to understand that if there's no benefit on the suicide part of that, that takes away one of the major uh, talking points of the other side. And I know that the immediate reaction from the left would be, yeah, but the thing is, those are because of bullying. Now, even if that were true, let, let's just say the argument that, well, the reason that they're still having suicide is even though they've transitioned, they're still being bullied. Let's just pretend that that were true for a second. Okay, it still wouldn't change the fact that the statistic still says that the rate is the same. You're not breaking my argument, you're just bringing up another point or a rationale for it, but that doesn't change the fact. That would be an argument to stop bullying, not an argument to engage in transition surgery. And so it's a little bit of a red herring fallacy. But, you know, of course that isn't true, and the reason that we know that is that study that I just showed you, conducted in Sweden, not an American study. And in Sweden, where that is widely accepted, you have the same results after transition as you do before transition. And by the way, this is also true in the States. You can look at bluer states and places where that is more accepted. Suicide rates are exactly the same there as they are in the South or in other places that you would stigmatize as being anti-trans. This is true in every country across the globe. Suicide rates are insanely high amongst transgender people because transgenderism is a, it, it has uh, components of a mental disorder and gender dysphoria is a mental disorder. And because of that, there are other psychological problems there which would include a tendency to commit suicide. It's not true in every trans person, obviously. But that tendency is there because they do have mental health problems. Uh, another thing that's very common amongst people that have gender dysphoria, especially people that are, are you know, men that are engaging in this, is that they, on a very wide scale, engage in things like prostitution. And so there's obvious psychological issues that come with transgenderism, and the left tries to ignore that, but that is what the data does show. Now, uh, let's look at some other studies and some findings on this that show that really there are no benefits to transitioning. This is from The Guardian, hardly a conservative newspaper, and you can see the highlighted portions here. Uh, ARIF, which conducts reviews of healthcare treatments for the National Health Service, concludes that none of the studies provide conclusive evidence that gender reassignment, in other words, the surgery, is beneficial for patients. Read that again. None of the studies conducted by the NHS show conclusive evidence that gender reassignment is beneficial for patients. And then skip down to the bottom there, Quote, there is a huge uncertainty over whether changing someone's sex is a good or a bad thing, says Dr. Chris Hyde, director of ARIF. He, he continues on and says, 
While no doubt great care is taken to ensure that appropriate patients undergo gender reassignment, there's still a large number of people who have the surgery but remain traumatized, often to the point of committing suicide. That's not that difficult to understand, and this is a guy that is in favor of transgenderism who's conducting this study, and these are people on the left saying, yeah, we looked at the data, and we can't tell that there's any difference after gender reassignment surgery is before gender reassignment surgery, and in fact, the people that undergo gender reassignment surgery, they continue to be traumatized, again, his words, not mine, to the point of suicide. This makes no difference in terms of whether or not a person commit suicide, but he's not the only one that is saying this. Let's look at a study done by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. And uh, if you skip down to the, the bottom there, the highlighted part, after careful assessment, we identified six studies that could provide useful information. Of these, the four best designed and conducted studies that assembled uh, that assessed quality of life before and after surgery using validated albeit nonspecific psychometric studies did not demonstrate clinically significant changes or differences in psychometric test results after gender reassignment surgery and this is after they had done a review of 33 different studies trying to find the best ones they narrowed it down to six and then they narrowed it down to four, and they said these are the ones that had the best methodology, these are the ones that looked at it long-term after people had transitioned, and we still, after all that, could not find a shred of data that showed that their lives were improved or that they were less likely to commit suicide after gender reassignment surgery. That's simply what the data shows. Uh, don't blame me, this is just what the facts are. Now, someone might say, yeah, but that was a Centers for Disease Control study, and it was probably that evil, evil orange bad man Trump that conducted that study. No, actually, that one was done during the Obama administration. So you know they really, really wanted that study to show that gender reassignment surgery, especially since they were talking about in Obama's administration, allowing that to happen for free for military personnel. They really, really wanted that to show, and he's the one that commissioned that study in the first place, that that was the case, and when they looked at the data, they had to say, nope, sorry, we, we looked and did the best we could, but the data's just simply not there. Furthermore, this is a article from SciPost, which is a newspaper specifically aimed at psychological studies and people that are, um, you, you know, th th this is basically the professional uh, magazine uh, or, sorry, professional newspaper for psychiatrists. And you see the title of this article here, How Many Transgender Kids Grow Up to Stay Trans? And then at the end, for reference, in a previous post, I listed the results of every study that ever followed up transgender kids to see how they felt in adulthood. There are 12 such studies in all, and they all came to the very same conclusion. The majority of kids cease to feel transgender when they get older. By the way, I, I didn't go to the specific stats, but the studies that they're talking about are, are anywhere from 80 to 95% of all children that experience gender dysphoria as children, as minors, by the time they reach young adulthood, in other words, their early 20s, that goes away for them. And yet, Democrats in the state of Alabama want 
it to be possible for you to permanently sterilize and alter these kids' bodies, despite the fact that they know, based on the studies, that if they just left them alone, 80 to 95% of them, by the time that they got to young adulthood, would be just fine. They'd be fine without the gender assignment surgery and would decide that they actually are the gender that they were born as. And that's not getting into trans regret, where people transition and then are upset that they transitioned, especially early on. This law would protect them from that. Think about it. When you were a kid or when you were a teenager, you did a lot of stupid things that you look back on as, a, as an adult and you regret. And there were a lot of things that seemed like a really good idea when you were a kid that seem like a really dumb idea now that you're an adult. That's all this law is aimed to do. It's designed to keep kids from making the biggest mistake of their life, from permanently mutilating their bodies in a way that makes them sterile, that makes them unable to, you know, not only just reproduce, but have a, a healthy lifestyle that is going to make them significantly at higher risk for cancer, for blood clot, for stroke, for heart disease, and suicide. And the left is saying, yeah, they ought to be able to do it. These are not the people that care about kids. All of the data suggests that allowing children to undergo this process is a very, very bad idea for them in the short term and in the long term. And as you just saw, there are really no benefits to it. Look, I don't have anything against these trans kids. I, I think that they are sincere and genuine, and they probably really do believe this. I think they're wrong, obviously. But just like anybody else that has a mental disease, I genuinely have sympathy for them, and the suicides is a real problem. I genuinely hope we can find a way to solve it, but this is not the answer. I mean, you couldn't look at a treatment. Can you tell me of any other medical treatment in the world, and I'm using the word treatment loosely here, that would have a risk at that level shows zero benefits and the medical community would be like, yeah, we should go along with that. That's a good idea. We should, we should keep doing that, especially for people under 18. That makes no sense. The only reason this is being done is because it pushes a political agenda. And here's the other thing too. When we're looking at it specifically from the standpoint of you know, legality and government, you have to keep one thing in mind. They keep talking about it being their right, but ultimately what trans people and, and trans kids and the guardians of trans kids are asking for is not a right, but a privilege. Remember that the definition of privilege, at least what it originally meant, where the root of the word privilege comes from, it meant special laws, special exceptions to laws that did not apply to you. And that's exactly what they're asking for. And if you don't believe me, think about it this way. We do not allow, and I already brought this up before, we don't even allow minors to get a tattoo. But granted, they can get it with their parents' consent. That is something they're allowed to do once they reach a certain age, but they can get it even before that age if their parents consent. But here's the problem. If we had a parent that, for example, cut off a child's ear or nose or took out one of their eyes or lopped off an arm, what would we do to that parent? They would go to prison for a very long time and should, and they would also never be able to have access to their kids again. They would be bringing harm to their kid. 
Yet, because it's transgender, we're saying, oh yeah, the parent should be allowed to make that decision and be able to lop off their sexual organs and to make this life-altering change decision for them. That's not a good policy. This is child abuse. I mean, for the same reason that we wouldn't let a parent let their kids smoke, we wouldn't let, you know, have them let their five-year-old smoke because that would be child abuse because it greatly increases their risk of things like cancer, uh, heart disease, hypertension, other things along those lines. We would say that that parent is acting irresponsibly and because of that they have proven that they cannot be trusted with the care of their child. This is the same thing except the risk is significantly higher and there are no benefits. And just like in that scenario, you cannot trust a person that is willing to put their child through this. Now, maybe some of these parents really are well-intended and they're just ignorant of all this. They don't understand that there's risk involved, but they need to. And I'm not saying that we should immediately take these kids away from their parents. I think this should be handled on a case-by-case basis, and that's the way that family law typically works anyway, and that's fine. But what I am saying is there is a comparable standard here. In the same way that we wouldn't let parents just make any decision for their kids or do anything to their kids, we wouldn't let them, even if they did do it through a doctor, go to a doctor and say, yeah, just take both of their legs off. They'll be fine. That's not the something that a rational, logical person would allow under law. Consider this as well. And this deals specifically with the genitals as well. We do not allow, even though it's a religious practice, for Muslims to circumcise their young girls. There is a process, and I know this is a little bit graphic, but I mean, that's the, I have to talk about it because that's the nature of this process. What they do is, in several Muslim countries, there is a ritual that Muslim girls sometimes go through that removes their clitoris. They refer to it as female circumcision, even though it's really nothing like circumcision, so I don't understand why. I guess it's just because it deals with the female genitalia like circumcision deals with the male genitalia. But anyway, it's a religious practice. It's significantly riskier than, riskier than male genitalia. It can lead to things like infection much, much easier uh, and it also does several other things and has several other side effects that I won't get into right now. But that has been outlawed in the United States of America on the federal level since 1996. Because we understand, even if you have a religious reason for it, it's not okay to mutilate your kid. In fact, the name of the law was the Female Genital Mutilation Act of 1996. We understand that parents shouldn't have unlimited power with their kids. Now, I tend to say the parent should have just about unlimited power with their kids, but when it comes to actually bringing harm to their children, there does need to be exceptions and protections in place in case that happens. And we recognize that even when we have a First Amendment, even in a country where we hold religious values sacred, that still does not give a parent a right to bring harm to their child. And yet this, which has no religious basis at all, I mean, unless you're counting the Church of Leftism, which is a rival religion, but I won't get off on that tangent right now. There is no religious basis for that. There is no right enshrined in the Constitution that is being protected by trans kids going through this. And yet we're treating this as though this is a right. And that they need to be able to go through this and, and not allowing them to do so is somehow a tyranny against them. At the end of the day, legalized gender transitioning is legalized child abuse. 
And I know that there's going to be people that are upset with me for saying that, but I will go to my grave holding that stance. After looking at all the information and everything on it, there's just no other conclusion to go to. And the state is obliged to intervene in a case like that. And we'll talk about this a little bit more in our interview that's coming up right now with Dr. Patrick Lapper. We'll be right back on Tactics. Speech isn't violence. Tolerance isn't love. Disagreement isn't hate. You're listening to Tactics with Caleb Cockwit. If you want to hear more, subscribe to him on YouTube, like him on Facebook, or follow him on Twitter at Tactics Radio. And welcome back, everybody. Thank you so much for being with us here on Tactics, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. My next guest is somebody that's an expert in the field, which I know that everybody in the state of Alabama, and rightfully so, has been concerned about the, the new transgender law, the one that is going to prevent minors from receiving treatment for transgenderism, whether it be puberty blockers, whether it be gender reassignment surgery. And so uh, to help us kind of understand this and sort through it, we've brought on uh, Dr. Patrick Lappert, who is a plastic surgeon. Welcome to the program, Dr. Lappert. Thanks, Caleb. Thanks for the invitation. Well, thank you so much for being with us. And uh, I, you know, usually hosts introduce their own guests, but I kind of like to let my guests give their own introduction. So uh, if you would just give us a little bit of your background and how you got into this field and, and you know, how you came about uh, choosing plastic surgery as your field of interest. Okay. Well, I've been a physician for about 40 years. Uh, I, I trained uh, my undergraduate degrees in cellular physiology, biology. Went to medical school um, uh, in the Navy, uh, served as, as, a, as a medical officer in the Navy for 24 years, uh, first in aerospace medicine and then in, as a general surgeon, and then they sent me off for training as a plastic and reconstructive surgeon. Mm -hmm. I finished out my career doing uh, essentially reconstructive surgery, uh, pediatric congenital deformities, and uh, was a department head, and I was the specialty leader in reconstructive surgery for the Surgeon General of the United States Navy my last several years. I've been in private practice for about the last almost 20 years, and then um, just recently retired from active surgery just a couple of months ago, but I, I still have an active practice, and uh, and I take a keen interest in, in the issues of uh, ethics and morality in the practice of surgery. So. I've, I've written book chapters on the subject of, uh, of transgender surgery, as well as uh, journal articles on cancer reconstruction and things like that. So, Well, uh, I would say, first of all, thank you for your service. And, and I know that my audience, especially being the, <laughs> I mean, Montgomery's a military town, so we certainly right. appreciate that aspect of your career. Um, but when it comes to uh, this uh, reconstruction, I, I know that... Um, I know that, a pro that proponents of this bill, and especially those in the media, have been billing this in a certain way. Uh, and one thing that I notice that happens over and over again is when they talk about this, they say that this bill would prevent trans kids, because it is only dealing with people under 18, just for those of you who may not under be familiar 19, with it. Uh, under 19, sorry. Yeah, that's, that's correct. Um, proponents of this are saying that it's denying treatment to those people. Is is treatment a correct way to characterize this, or, or what exactly, how would you categorize that? that? Well, that's a bad categorization. It doesn't deny treatment to, to persons who suffer with transgender uh, self-identification. 
it just it just limits what sorts of treatments can be offered to ch to persons under a certain age, uh, and really the only thing that it prevents is uh, uh, the use of puberty blocking drugs, cross sex hormones, and uh, transgender surgery. There's all there's always been uh, uh, supportive therapy for for children who experience cr cross sex identification, mm -hmm. and it's not preventing any of that. Uh, but what it's addressing is particular forms of therapy that are hazardous and life-altering to children in much the same way that, for example, we use hormone therapy for children uh, of a different kind. Uh, you might use growth hormone uh, in certain circumstances for, for children who have some pituitary mal uh, malfunctioning and things like that. But we, what we prevent is parents bringing their children to the endocrinologist to get growth hormones because the child identifies as an Olympic athlete, right? We wouldn't we wouldn't allow anabolic right. steroids in weightlifting kids who are in high school. Uh, it's the same kind of thing. There's certain things that the that, that the that the government has a vested interest in protecting the health of children, and this legislation fits into that category. So it's not preventing the medical care or the, or, or otherwise of children who experience cross-sex self-identification. It's preventing the use of certain therapy, therapies, which are, and we can talk about this, uh, sure. are not even proven safe, uh, much less effective in, in the claims that are being made for them, for the use of puberty blocking, for the use of cross-sex hormones, and certainly for the use of uh, life-altering surgery mm -hmm. on persons who don't even have the capacity to consent to such things. Well, I know that you're not a, a legal scholar, you're, you're a medical doctor, but I thought that you might have some insight into this. Are there other therapies or there other medical procedures that are denied people of certain ages, or is this the only one? Is this an outlier in that, uh, that respect? Well, no, there, for example, as a plastic surgeon, uh, I would have to have a very, very compelling reason to, to, to do breast augmentation on a 15-year-old girl. Okay, I mean, so essentially... Essentially, the only way the only way that I could I could justify it morally and ethically would be if she had a, a, a significant congenital deformity that I was going to reconstruct. But for an otherwise healthy girl to come in and say that she just wants larger breasts and for me to do a breast augmentation on her, I'd probably lose my license for that. Uh, likewise, the example I gave you before, if, mm -hmm. a, if, a, if a dad brings his son in, uh, because his dad and his son are, uh, agree that he should be a big league ball player, but he's a little mm. bit small, uh, I would not be allowed to give him androgens. I would not be allowed to give him hormone therapy to, to bulk him up. This is in the same category as that. So there are already laws on the books that regulate the application of medical therapies in children. Uh, this is just a, an addition to that that uh, list of, of uh, such laws. Right. And, and the reason that I asked that specifically is because this is something that comes into the debate very, very often, especially me being kind of a libertarian minded kind of person that, uh, you know, it's, it's their body, it's their choice. It's like, well, with minors, that's not necessarily always a good argument. That's the reason that's that we restrict things like alcohol, the reason we restrict things like uh, cigarette use, that kind of thing. And so I figured in the medical community, there was something similar to that. Uh, yeah, and and so those are those are two excellent examples: cosmetic surgery in in adolescence, mm -hmm. things like breast augmentation and something like that, and uh, and the use of uh, of uh, anabolic steroids in adolescent kids, performance enhancing drugs, things like that. You know, you you're not allowed to do that. 
Well, I'd like you to speak to this as well, because uh, and, and there may be none. I'm, I really don't know. And I'm kind of ignorant on this. And that's why, why I came to you to ask this. Uh, what are the risks involved in a surgery like this? And you can talk about gender reassignment surgery or hormone puberty blockers, that things for regular adults, people that would not be affected by this law, and then maybe specifically for people that would be under 19. Okay. Well, at, at the beginning of, of, of the issues is the use of puberty blocking drugs. These drugs are being given by a gender clinic mm -hmm. to children who self-identify as the other sex. And the idea behind it is that it quote unquote buys time for them. It prevents their sexual maturation so they don't develop the secondary sex characteristics of skeletal growth, deepening voice, uh, things like that, uh, breast development in girls. Mm -hmm. uh, it prevents those things. And the idea being that the child will then have time and it won't have such a big hurdle to overcome. Uh, you know, if they're, if they're trying to feminize a masculine body or masculinize a feminine body, right. the idea behind the use of puberty blocking is it won't be such a big deal. It'll be easier for them to transition if they decide that they want to continue on with transitioning. Here's the problem, Caleb. The use of puberty blocking drugs uh, has been part of medical care for a long, long time, but we use them to normalize hormone levels in children, uh, for example, who have precocious puberty. So there is a condition where a child will develop sexual maturation very early in life, you know, six, seven, eight years old and already developing breasts and, and body hair and secondary mm -hmm. sex characteristics. And it, ha it has massive effects on skeletal growth and things like that. Well, you have to normalize their hormone levels so that they can have a normal developmental curve in their life. And so puberty blocking drugs are given to children like that to normalize their sex hormone levels. There is absolutely no safety record even for the use of puberty blocking drugs in otherwise normal children. They're taking normal children and blocking their adult development, basically, uh, the idea being to, to give them a chance to make up their mind. Well, what, what happens to a child when you give them puberty blocking drugs is it stunts their growth. Mm -hmm. It completely st uh, stops musculoskeletal, well, not completely, but radically alters musculoskeletal development. Their brain development is radically altered by it. They don't develop normal psychosexual processes. Even their higher executive functioning of their brain development is altered, right? Mm -hmm. And so what happens within a year of being on puberty blocking drugs is that they physically look different from their peers. And it essentially reaffirms in their mind that there's something different about them. They'll be, you know, two, three inches shorter than their peers. They will have none of the facial maturation that, that adolescence brings. Their voice won't be changing. They won't be growing hair or anything else like that. And they'll come to believe that they really are different. So what is claimed by the gender ideolo ideologues as being a pause button is really a go button because now the child is reinforced in the idea that they really are different. And what is the next step? Well, the next step is cross-sex hormones. So now what they're doing is they're taking a, a boy and giving him massive doses of female hormones in order to morph their body into something that looks female. Same, likewise with a girl. They'll take a girl and give massive doses of androgen testosterone hormones mm -hmm. to masculinize their body. And we're talking about levels of these hormones that are perhaps 10 times higher than would be normal for a child that age. And that carries with it tremendous risks of everything from blood clots in the legs, pulmonary emboli, stroke, 
heart attack, cancer, high blood pressure, metabolic syndrome, diabetes, that sort of thing. And, and they're doing this without, without, any, without any justification other than that the child has self-identified as the other sex. It's not based on any diagnosis. Precocious puberty, I can do a diagnostic test. I can measure the hormone levels in the seven-year-old child and go, this child has precocious puberty. In the case of transgender, there is no medical test that I can do to disprove or prove it. The child is making the diagnosis, and the doctor is now compelled to play along. Is there any... That, that, that makes no moral sense to me at all. No, it doesn't make sense to me either. And that's actually one thing I was going to ask because uh, th this is being sort of billed as so much of a, an outlier. And I wanted to ask, is there any other uh, medical condition or any other space in the medical community where the patient gets to diagnose themselves and the doctor has to accept the diagnosis of the patient? No, there is no other condition. Certainly no other condition that leads on to major surgery. Where, where, where the doctor does nothing to prove or disprove the diagnosis. None. This is, this is the only one that I know of. Well, and that was actually kind of leading into another one. When it comes to the, the Hippocratic Oath, I mean, I, I've always understood that doctors take an oath that the very first thing that they have to promise is to do no harm. And would this be a violation of that considering you're dealing with a otherwise healthy body. I mean, I guess you could make the argument that there's some psychological issues going on there, but as far as the body itself, um, like you were saying right. earlier, there's, there's nothing uh, medically wrong with the body, and so they're prescribing and treating it, and in some cases removing body parts uh, right. of an otherwise healthy body. Is that a violation of that? Well, so it, uh, at, at first, in the prima facie look at it, mm -hmm. yeah, first do no harm. That is, that's absolutely correct. And that's one of the reasons why we go to such great lengths to get the diagnosis right before we offer a consent form to a patient. We have to, we have, to have some level of, of uh, confidence that the risk-benefit ratio is vastly in favor of the person. There are surgeries that I do, that I've done, that are disfiguring surgeries but, but are done to save the life of the patient. For example, I've done limb amputations on gangrenous limbs to save the life of the patient. Mm -hmm. So you could say, well, you're, you're disfiguring, you're mutilating the person. Well, I've, I've done something radical to them, but I've done it to save their life. And that's the claim that the transgender advocates will make. They'll say, well, you've got to give them this therapy. You've got to give them the hormones. You've got to give them the transition surgery, because if you don't, they're going to kill themselves. So they liken this to life-saving intervention because of the high suicide rate. And the fact is that that is not supported in the literature. The only literature that supports that idea are very small studies, very few patients, very short-term follow-up, while, while their patients are in the thrill of this beautiful life that they're being promised by these doctors. But if you, if you actually look at patients who have transitioned, have gone through the whole process of hormones, cross-sex surgery, the, the whole gamut, mm -hmm. if you follow them out beyond about five years, I'm sorry, about eight years after their transition, their suicide rate is as high as it, as it was if you'd never done anything for them, 19 times higher than the rest of the population. And in the case of female to male transitioners, it's 40 times higher. So essentially what you have at the end of this whole medical debacle is a person who still has an interior anxiety, still has an interior wound, but whose genitals you've mutilated and who you've rendered sterile, 
right? And put at risk for all these other problems that we talked about and have made them a dependent on the medical system for the rest of their life. And that's that's a huge disservice. Right, and that's another thing that I, I think people need to really understand as well. Um, what gender reassignment surgery does, and, and correct me if I get any of the facts wrong here, um, but what gender reassignment does in, in both cases is it creates a, a pseudo sort of a, you know, they appear to be male or female, you know, whichever one they get reassigned to. But at the end of the day, it's not the same thing because a male body still has an X chromosome and a Y chromosome. And it's still going to try to close up that wound like it's a scar for the rest of their life. And so they, they do have to continue on with uh, certain treatments that are not quite as radical as the initial surgery. But that's something that they're going to continue to have to do for the rest of their life. That's correct. Yeah, what, what, what the plastic surgery uh, of reassignment, as it's called, what it produces is a counterfeit. It doesn't produce an actual male reproductive part. It produces a, a flesh phallus that may mm -hmm. or may not be capable of penetrative intercourse that will have vastly degraded sensory um, a signal that provokes erotic sensibility Right. Right. So that that so even the erotic sensibility is vastly degraded. You've sterilized the person, so you have essentially destroyed both aspects of the human sexual union. It is unitive. It brings two persons together in a in a permanent bond, assuming that it is that it's not adulterous or some other some other evil. Right. But it, it it produces a bond of persons that is life giving, and what's what's created by these procedures is neither. It's neither. They have a vastly degraded sensory uh, uh, se sensation from those parts, and uh, and it's it's sterilizing. So yeah, right. So there's and, and zero chance said, of reproduction and very little chance of the other happening. Correct. Correct. Well, correct. When it when it comes to this, uh, I'm 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 almost at a loss at how to word this, but uh, because it is something that is so different, it's so out there. A lot of people are unfamiliar with it. But um, it, when we were talking about the literature earlier and about it on the mass scale, I think that people, the average person, doesn't really understand the difference in case study and larger swaths of data. Because you're right, it, there are some studies that are out there where the, the case data actually looks very promising, where the person seems to be cured of their gender dysphoria and they're sort of in uh, trans joy, I think is the, the actual term for it. Uh, but yeah. then if you look at the metadata, you see that the suicide rates post-transition are actually almost identical to suicide rates pre-transition. That's so, correct, yeah. So on the larger scale, it, it seems to do nothing. No, that's correct. So part of the part, whenever you're examining medical literature, there's certain things that you want to look for, particularly when you're talking about uh, outcomes data, as it's called. Mm -hmm. Are we doing the patient good? Or are we not doing the patient good? And there's certain biases that you can find in in journal articles that are relatively easy to spot. So, for example, there's a thing called self-selection bias. Self-selection bias is where the patient determines whether they're going to be in the study. Or, or, or the patient is going to return for follow-up. Just consider the bias that you will get if all of the bad outcomes never come back for follow-up. Well, if only the good outcomes come back for follow-up, you're going to think you're doing them a world of good. Right. Well, 
the bad outcome in transgenderism is suicide. Dead people don't come back for follow-up. And right. so if your study isn't able to track those patients down, it's going to skew your data in the favor of a good outcome. That's just that's the, the crudest example. The best mm -hmm. data, though, has got to be the long-term data. And the best database at, at present is in the Netherlands, but really in Sweden is the best uh, database because they have, a, they have a medical database that involves everybody in Sweden from before they're born until their room temperature. They're entered in the same database using the same language, and, and, and you're able to go in there and compare apples with apples. Mm -hmm. So if, for example, I wanted to see what is the likelihood that a 27-year-old a, a person is going to commit suicide, and I can compare transgender persons with a 27-year-old male, middle of the birth order, middle class, urban dwelling, whatever I want to look at. I can compare apples to apples, and, I, and now I can make a statement. I can say, well, the relative risk for suicide comparing that study group of transgender persons with the rest of the population is. That's the database mm -hmm. that has shown us that there's a period, there's sort of a grace period after transitioning that lasts about five to seven years. But when you get out to year eight, all of a sudden, the, the self-harm rate comes right back to what it was before. Right, the excitement, as you as you pointed out, the excitement is gone. People are not encouraging you any longer because they're essentially through with you. You transitioned. You've been called a hero now for nine, ten years, and they're they're tired of bringing it up. And there you are. You're left with this interior wound that is what caused the problem in the first place. Body dysmorphic disorder is what we used to call this. Body identity disorder. Body dysmorphic disorder. It's where a person ascribes to the appearance of their body the explanation for why they have this tremendous interior anxiety, right? Oftentimes associated with feelings of, of uh, uh, loss of safety. And, and uh, the classic example is the anorexic girl. An anorexic girl is convinced that the reason why she doesn't have any friends is because she's fat. Mm -hmm. But she's not actually fat. She has a she has a compulsive an obsessive thought that she's fat, and she has a compulsive behavior about that fatness, but you can't talk her out of the fact that she's that she's not fat at all, and and so so they have a misperception about their appearance, and they ascribe all of their sorrows to the appearance of their body. It's a very common presentation in the plastic surgeon's office. I have to tell you, people come to plastic surgeons all the time trying to be happy. And the reason they think they're not happy is something about their appearance. And we as plastic surgeons are trained to recognize those patients because it's malpractice to offer them surgery. It's malpractice for, for, for me to offer surgery to a man who thinks that if you change the appearance of his nose, he will be successful in business and he'll have a wife. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, and that happens. People will come to plastic surgeons with just that idea. Oh, I'm it's sure. Body dysmorphic disorder. I can make myself rich doing surgery on them, but I'm not doing them a good, any service. And if my peers found out about it, I'd probably lose my board certification. It's, it's malpractice. But if we do it in the case of sexual identity, mm -hmm. it's now considered righteous. Well, so here's my question on that. If that's the case, then what happens to somebody that goes through either puberty blockers, hormone blockers, and, and then maybe even transitions and goes through the actual reassignment surgery? Uh, what happens to them, and, and maybe is this the reason that the suicide rate gets really high on down the road, 
um, let's say that they decide that they were wrong in doing that and they actually are a man and actually are a woman, but now they've completely disfigured themselves, does that cause some kind of body dysphoria? Oh, it sure can. It, the, transgender regret is a whole new category of human suffering now. And, uh, and there are, there are uh, ever-growing support groups for people who regret their, their, their transition. Uh, there's a particularly great um, uh, resource called um, uh, sexchangeregret.org, sexchangeregret.org. It's run by a friend of mine named Walter Heyer, who went through that whole transition. He suffered greatly as a child, was, uh, was convinced by his, his friends and his peers that he's transgender. He was a very successful in, in the automotive industry, had a wife and kids, went through the whole transition, lived eight years as a woman and realized he'd made a horrible mistake. And now he's been living as a man again for 30 years. And he helps people who are going through this, this regret. And, and virtually all of what we're doing to these children is irreversible. The, the claim is made that puberty blockade is reversible. There's no proof of that at all. There's, and this certainly is not a, a re, utterly reversible when you use cross-sex hormones. If a girl uses testosterone for a year, she will always have a deep voice and she will always have facial hair and she will always be more heavily muscled than if she would have been, and, and, and facial skeletal growth will be very masculinized. You can't take that back. And certainly if she has a mastectomy, you, can't, you can give her back breast mounds, but she'll never be able to breastfeed. Likewise, and, and, and likewise, the, the long-term use of estrogen in, in males it renders them sterile, right? And, mm -hmm. and, 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 and feminizes their bodies. They'll need surgery to get rid of the breast tissue that they grow. And, and the odds are very high that even if they didn't have bottom surgery, that they're probably sterile. So, yeah, it's, and, and so this is what this legislation is about. It's about protecting children from irreversible changes and, and decisions that are being made for them by people who think they're doing them good. And, and, and remember that the diagnosis is being made by that pre-adolescent child. They're taking children who are in second and third grade and encouraging them to believe that they're the other sex and funneling them right into gender clinics. We've got school counselors and school nurses and teachers who are encouraging children to think this way. Our classrooms are being filled with this, with this deranged literature of gender ideology. It's seeping into the military, it's seeping into the libraries, it's seeping into public schools, even private schools. And children are being overwhelmed by these sexualizing messages and they're being asked to make decisions. Like, do you wanna go on puberty blockers? Oh yes, I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely, I'm a girl and I wanna go that route. And they'll be encouraged. They're being called heroic. If, I, if an anxious child is getting nothing but encouraging messages, they're going to feel really good. Well, it's, it's lucky for us that teenagers and people that are in the puberty stage of their life are both not gullible and are known for only making good decisions. We're, we're real lucky <laughs> that that's the case. I mean, honestly, that's, right? the, that's the thing that has baffled me throughout this entire debate about it being about children. I was like, but we don't even trust teenagers to make decisions like getting a tattoo and, right. and yet we say that legally they should be able to have life-altering surgery that would permanently sterilize them and change right. their appearance in the way that you're describing. Now, you know, like I said, I, I tend to be very libertarian on a lot of these things. If, if you're over the age of majority, I may not agree with your decision. I may tell you that your decision is stupid, but that's your decision to make. But when we're talking about minors specifically, 
I mean, I don't. I know that this is a big secret that most people don't know about, but teenagers tend to not make great decisions. You think? <laughs> I hitchhiked from from San Francisco to Portland when I was fifteen. I'm here to tell you, teenagers make really right. bad decisions. Probably not the smartest decision. Not the smartest <laughs> thing I ever but, did. <laughs> but but that's the thing that astounds me about this is I I totally understand the mantra of the government shouldn't be protecting you from your own bad decisions. But at the same time, when we're talking about minors, Children. that that's a completely Correct. different scenario Correct. there, and and that's Correct. especially true in the medical community. Yeah, and, and you add on to that. I mean, I don't want to be a utilitarian about this, but you're, you're basically, you're taking children and making them lifelong dependent on the medical system that the same people who advocate for, for gender transitioning, gender ideo ideology, are the same people who are militating for government-run health care. So essentially what you're, what you're taking is you're putting this added burden on the taxpayer for lifetime care of persons who are going to be dependent on the medical system forever. Right. I mean, let's, you know, I don't mean to take this uh, way too political, but let's remember that Barack Obama was the person that was accusing surgeons of removing people's feet, like diabetics' feet, uh, just even though that wasn't necessary, just to make a quick buck. And those same people that were saying that, you know, doctors and, and physicians and surgeons are evil money grubbers that will just do needless procedures for no reason are also saying, but we should totally trust that when they are engaging children in this in a uh, basically a, a surgery that will make them dependent upon them for life when they otherwise wouldn't be, that we should totally trust that that's legitimate and they have no profit incentive uh, for doing so. So can I ask you a question, Caleb? Fire away. Would you characterize your audience as being predominantly Christian? Uh, pretty much, yeah. I'm, I'm sure that I have some non-Christians, but sure. the yeah. overall well, no, majority clearly. are, for sure. Clearly. Yeah, well... Here we are. We're 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 in the in the Easter season. Mm -hmm. Here, here's something I want to leave you and your audience with. Sure. That there's something about this transgenderism that's that's more than just what you see on the surface. There's something literally diabolical about it. Because think about this: a child looking at themselves undressed in in a mirror, mm -hmm. and and believing and rehearsing in their mind the language that that they are a person who's in the wrong body, as if there is such a thing, as if the human person is some, some disincarnate spirit being that may or may not occupy the right body. That is contrary to Western thought. It's contrary to Christian understanding of who the human person is. And if you believe that it's possible for a person to be in the wrong body, then essentially you have completely removed any understanding of what it what the incarnation of Jesus Christ means because if a child can look at themselves in the mirror and say that's not really me then they can they, they can meditate on Christ on the cross and say that wasn't really God God was occupying a body but God did not really die on the cross because the God man didn't really exist this is a direct attack on the Christian understanding of who God is and what God has done for us. Well, and it also rejects God as the creator because Correct. ultimately what you're saying is that, and I've, I've said this for a long time, I didn't intend to go this direction with you, but since you did, I'm, I'm go. going to bring it up. Um, <laughs> uh, when it comes to that, essentially what you're saying is I am my own God. I get to decide what gender I am. That's not God's call. That's my decision. 
And so it is a form of self-idolatry in a way yes, it is. Uh, that you get to make yourself into whatever that you want. But I will say that the irony and the, the logical inconsistency there that I've always found quite amusing is that for somebody that is a uh, someone that only believes in the physical realm, that does not at all believe that there is anything to the spiritual, they'll say that you were born in the wrong body. Well, if all you are is a body, that's not possible. Like the only way Bingo. they can kind of justify it is say, yeah, well, but no. your soul is in the wrong gendered body. Yeah. Now, of course, that's not true because God doesn't make mistakes. But right. the only way that you can believe that is if you believe in the spiritual and something outside of the Correct. physical realm and outside of science. That intelligence can exist apart from the material world. Right. Yes, exactly. You hit it out of the park, brother. That's exactly right. So it's a self-contradictory thing. That if you if you believe in the if, in the material causation of the human person that we are a string of material accidents that led to what is called man, and yet you can consider that a human person can exist apart from the material that you see, then you've just contradicted yourself completely. Right. That makes absolutely no sense. You yeah, you've no. completely destroyed your own worldview at that point. Exactly. Now, I could maybe exactly. understand somebody. I mean, it's wrong, but it is logically consistent to say. <laughs> That there is a spiritual realm, and there are things that are supernatural, but uh, whatever God or Parthenon of gods that created us sometimes make mistakes in putting people in the wrong body. Now, that's ridiculous, but it is at the very least logically consistent. The idea that someone who is an atheist or believes only in the material can also believe that you can be born in the wrong body, that just makes no sense at all. Yeah, and, and you know what really makes even less sense is that after 40 years of being a doctor— I never, I never read a single textbook, never read a single journal article or heard a single lecture where the human person was described as a spirit being that occupies the body. And yet you've got these doctors who, who claim expertise in endocrinology or pediatrics that actually use that language. You go to the websites of these gender clinics at the biggest hospitals in America, and they'll have verbiage like that that's saying, we gave them cross-sex hormones so that he could align his body with the person he always knew he was on the inside. What does that even mean? What does that even mean? You know, well, and yet, again, and, and, that's, and, and that they'll have the doctor's name, MD, endocrinology, board certified. Like, who are you and where did you get these words? Well, and that's another thing, too. I, I find that funny because saying who they are on the inside also would imply some kind of spiritual, because unless you're talking about like the lungs and the heart and the liver, well, every cell of each of those organs either has an XX chromosome or an XY chromosome. So, again, it, it, it doesn't make any sense. Um, but ultimately, uh, that that's the thing that, you know, atheists have been preaching for years is that. Um, science doesn't deal with the spiritual, which they're correct in saying that, but then they want to have their cake and eat it too when it comes to certain issues that they, they try to use it to justify their political agenda. That's correct. All right, correct. so uh, thank you so much for being with us. I think this has been uh, very enlightening, and I appreciate you uh, taking some time out of your day to do this. Uh, now, I know that you know the show airs a lot of our audiences in the Montgomery area, but we do broadcast all over the state of Alabama, and I'm sure that we have some viewers. In fact, I know of a few of them up in the Decatur area. Um, if there are any people watching this that would like to get in touch with you or um, you know might you know need your professional expertise as a as a doctor and a plastic surgeon, how would they get in touch with you? Uh, you can find me online at LaffertPlasticSurgery.com. All right. 
Well, yeah, uh, and I always end all of my uh, interviews like this. Is there anything that you want the audience to know that maybe I wouldn't have thought to ask? Uh, what I want the audience to know is that is that the, it is possible to trust common sense, and there's nothing about this whole transgender argument that even passes the initial sniff test. It's a complete fabrication. The whole thing is a complete fabrication. And, and, and the, the ones who will suffer the most are the children and, and family life will suffer if, if we do not stop this juggernaut of insanity called transgender medicine. And trust your common sense, brothers and sisters, because you are given it for a reason. You know, it's been written in your heart who, who you are as a human being. And, uh, and, and this is no, no exceptional case. Transgender is not an exceptional case. It's, it's part of the human experience and, uh, and it has to make sense in order to be true. So, so trust your common sense on this one. Well, I appreciate that because uh, you don't have to have a medical degree to understand how this makes sense. That's one of the things they do all the time is they bully us with their, with their credentials and the diplomas and, just, and they keep changing the language and they say, well, you don't understand. Obviously, you don't know what I meant by this word or whatever. You're not an expert. Trust me, I'm an expert. No, no. It's like yeah. those uh, old Dr. Pepper commercials. Trust me, I'm a doctor. You know, that's, <laughs> yeah. what, drinking a Dr. Pepper does not make you a doctor. Let's move on. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, All Dr. Right. Lappert. I appreciate it. You have a good All one. Right, God. God bless. God bless you. That's uh, Dr. Lappert. He's a plastic surgeon from Decatur, Alabama. Thank you so much for lending his expertise to this. So we're going to be back in just a minute on Tactics. Speech isn't violence. Tolerance isn't love. Disagreement isn't hate. You're listening to Tactics with Caleb Cockwit. If you want to hear more, subscribe to him on YouTube, like him on Facebook, or follow him on Twitter at Tactics Radio. Now you messed it up. <laughs> You're stupid. And today's Daily Dose of Stupid, we're going to continue talking about the transgender thing. And guys, the media has just lost their mind on the transgender bill here in the state of Alabama. And so I figured it just made sense because they have been acting very stupid on this. And there's just so many examples of it. It really, uh, you, you run out of things to talk about because of, <clears throat> here's the thing. When you don't have a good argument, you just have to paint your opponent as the bad guy. And that's what they do. That's their playbook. That's their entire playbook because they know none of this makes sense. They know they can't win the argument on their merits. And so what they have to do is paint everybody else as evil haters because that's the only way they think that they can win the argument. And the truth is they're probably right. The media has just been absolutely garbage at covering this. Let's look at some national media examples. And I want you to pay very close attention to the language in these headlines. NPR, it's hurtful. Trans youth speaks out as Alabama debates banning medical treatment. You're going to see that word a lot, treatment. And you'll know that from the interview that we just had with Dr. Lappert, that treatment is not a correct way to characterize what is going on with trans treatment, as it were. Uh, PBS, trans tr teenagers fear Alabama push to outlaw gender-affirming treatment. Okay, so now you not only have treatment, it's gender-affirming. In other words... When they say gender affirming, they are assuming that the person actually is the gender they are claiming to be. That's what it means to affirm that when a man dresses like a woman, he actually is a woman and having the surgery to make his body look more like a woman's body. That's just affirming the gender that he already is. 
the Associated Press, Alabama Senate approves treatment ban for kids, for trans kids. So again, you're saying that they are banning treatment for these kids. And then CBC, the Canada Broadcasting Company, Alabama may soon make this transgender teen's medical treatment illegal. Again, saying that it's the treatment and they're going to make it illegal. Thanks, Canada. Really appreciate you getting all up in our business over that. So look, here's the thing. We kind of expect this out of the national media. It's really not a surprise, and I guess technically the international media as well, since Canada is even covering this a certain way, and they're specifically covering even Alabama's new law on that. But uh, this is the way that it goes. The national news media is is just going to do this. And the thing is, they really love it because it's such a clickbait thing for them, because there are a few other states that kind of go along with this, but perhaps none more so than Alabama that they... Uh, those elites on the coast just like to look at us and say, oh, those idiot Neanderthals down there in Alabama, those country fried rubes in the middle of the country, they don't know anything. And they actually, they actually don't understand that men are women and women are men. Yeah, we're, we're, we're the country fried rubes that don't understand anything. Good job there, national media. But you'll notice that that language is consistent throughout. And the thing is, I'd like to say that that's just the national news media. But the truth is, the local news media hasn't been any better, at least not on this one issue. So let's go ahead and look at a couple examples of that. This is from Alabama political reporter who has been really just kind of awful. I mean, yes, they're always awful, but they've specifically been really awful on this one particular issue. The first one here, House Committee passes bill banning treatment for trans minors. And I also want you to pay attention to the subheading here too. Uh, Republican Joe Lothorn expressed concern that the bill, if becomes law, could result in more teen suicides. Okay, a couple things here. First of all, again, they're saying that they're banning treatments for trans minors, sort of trying to convince the reader that these are treatments, these are things that are going to be helpful, and the very bad Republicans in Alabama's House and Senate are trying to stop that. And then in the subheading here, What's important is he's saying it could result in more teen suicides. Now, we've already looked at the data. There is literally no difference between people who have transitioned and people that have not transitioned. And the suicide rate remains constant regardless. But don't let that get in the way of a good story, right? And yes, there was a Republican representative that said this, but that's not providing cover for him. He's an idiot too if he believes that. All you have to do is just a little bit of study on this topic and and how it affects the suicide rate to realize that it doesn't actually affect the suicide rate. The second one here, Alabama Senate votes to ban gender-affirming care for trans minors. Again, the word care sort of incentivize or sort of trying to drum up the idea in the reader's mind that this is a caring thing. This is something that they are doing to try to be compassionate and take care of the trans minors, and also saying gender-affirming. Again, asserting the premise is true. This is part of the problem, is that most Republicans and most conservatives, they tend to go along with the language and affirm the premise and then try to argue against it. That's a mistake. See, what they're doing here is they are assuming that transgenderism is correct, and by saying gender-affirming, they're saying, yes, they're just conforming to the gender that they always are. And again, the subheading here is important. The bill would ban puberty blocking and hormone treatments in minors, despite doctors warning such a ban could risk children's lives. Which which doctors? 
I, I know that they cite them there in the uh, the article because I read the article. But the problem with it is, is they don't actually offer any data. They have doctors that say, well, theoretically, maybe banning these treatments could cause a child to be more suicidal. But again, when you look at the data, it does not show that at all. And so just because somebody is a doctor and they make an assertion and have nothing to back it up, that doesn't make them automatically right. The average reader does not think about it that way, though. And Alabama Political Reporter knows this, and that's the reason they write these articles in the way that they do. Let's go ahead and look at even more local coverage that completely botched this thing. And this one from our own hometown paper, the Montgomery Advertiser. Our home too. Families youth rally against anti-transgender bills in Alabama. Now, again, they're asserting that the bills are anti-transgender. The bills are not anti-transgender. They don't in any way affect anybody that is transgender over the age of 19. And for the people that are under the age of 19, it's actually aimed at protecting them. And furthermore, it's also trying to, it's not saying that it hates them or that they're less than, it's not saying any of that. All it's saying is they can't get this treatment until they have reached the age of consent. And AL.com, who has just been absolute garbage on this the entire time, transgender Alabama woman to lawmakers considering, again, using the word treatment ban, insinuating that this is treatment that is good and helpful that is being banned. Talk to one of these kids. AL.com, trans Alabama teens to lawmakers, just let us be ourselves. And uh, I think this one's actually my favorite one out of the whole group, primarily because the whole point of transgenderism is you're asserting that you're not yourself. You're asserting that the, the body that you're in is not yourself, and so you're actually denying who you are. <laughs> so I find that amusing that the line is, just let me be myself. It's like, well, if I did let you be yourself, I would prevent you from trying to alter your appearance to be somebody that you're not. And then finally, uh, again, AL.com, advocates protest Alabama bills to limit trans youth's rights as other states consider similar laws. So again, you have an assertion there that it's the right of trans people that is being limited by this bill. It is their right to get puberty blockers. And, their, and so that's, again, they are, you can see it from the onset. You can see the bias very clearly in all of these headlines. These are just a few of the examples that I found. That they are asserting that the trans side of the debate is the correct one, and that comes through in their coverage. But don't worry, guys. These are all completely objective news sources here. They're completely unbiased and there's there's nothing in here that would make you suspect that they have an agenda behind it. This is the reason that people do not trust the media is because whenever given the chance, even if it is subtle, I don't really think this is all that subtle, but even when it is subtle, they do everything within their power to take sides. That's why we don't trust these people. And even the local news media here in the state of Alabama is just as bad, if not worse, than the national. And remember, a lot of these corporations and, and news media outlets are actually run by people outside the state, so that really shouldn't surprise us, but that's the way that it is. I still think my favorite one, though, is the let us be ourselves. It's like, let me be myself and change everything about myself so that I can be myself. All right, dude. All right. 
That's how they think about it, though. It really is astounding. The most basic thing about you, and you want to check, like, um, it would make no sense to be like, hey, let me chop off my arm and have a robot arm, because, you know, that would be me being myself. No, if anything, you'd be less yourself at that point. But anyway, that's how they think about it. I just, I found that headline really funny. But ultimately, the reason that it comes down to this uh, is that this language does matter. And, and it's not just the headlines. I, you know, I read through these articles. They're all bad. They all have that bias throughout the entirety of the article. A good example of this, again, AL.com is the most egregious example of this as normal. They're the CNN of Alabama. So you can see this is from that article that we read earlier, Transgender Woman to Lawmakers Considering Treatment Ban. Talk to one of these kids. So you can see here in this expose, they are considering a bill that would make it a felony to prescribe or provide medications to block or delay puberty and sex hormones to anyone under 19. The bill also bans gender confirmation surgeries. Again, this is the same thing as gender affirming surgeries. They are assuming that the person actually is the gender that they are claiming to be, and that is why they are saying it in this way, gender confirmation surgeries. They're saying that, no, it's just confirming the gender that they already are. And then it says, of course, the pediatrician who leads the program for transgender youth UAB said surgeries never done on minors in Alabama. Well, it's really neither here nor there because now they're banned anyway, so it doesn't matter. But this is what's so important. The language here does matter because the language is how they change things. The language is how they slowly manipulate people over time into thinking that these behaviors are okay. They workshop these things. They do, uh, you know, different clinics on these things to try to find the right wording that they think will be most acceptable to the average person. And that's how they slowly over time change public perception on things. And so the language is important, but they constantly, every single chance they get, they take every single opportunity to try to side with and give credence to the idea that the trans side of the debate is the correct debate, even when they pretend to cover it in an unbiased way. And another thing that I really would like to point out here, it comes from that same article that we were just looking at. Um, and the, the thrust of this article was they interviewed a young, young boy who transitioned into being a girl as much as that can be done. And a resident of Alabama was saying that if this had happened five years ago when he was a minor, that it would have been devastating to him. And so that's where this particular piece starts. So again, this is AL.com. <clears throat> had the ban on transgender therapies proposed by the legislation been in place five years ago, Fuller, this is the, the guy who transitioned into being a girl, said that she would have been devastated. She said she would, again, asserting that she is actually the gender that he claims to be, using the pronoun she, would probably have left the state to receive hormones. Yeah, I was pretty suicidal, but I wasn't dumb, she wrote. I was a woman with a plan and extreme motivation. Nothing would have stopped me from achieving my goal. Now, first of all, that's a heck of a statement that you were suicidal, but you weren't dumb. Now, granted, I'm not trying to rub salt in an open wound or anything like that, but that to me is just an odd statement. 
because I even know people that are suicidal. I have close friends that have had issues with suicidal thoughts and, and came close to, to an attempt once that even said, yeah, it was stupid. I don't know why I thought that. And I don't know why I felt that way. Like, I don't know if this person actually was suicidal or not. I genuinely hope that they were not. Now, as high of, uh, as we just talked about in the stats earlier in the show, as high a rate of suicides and suicide attempts as transgender people tend to have, it really wouldn't surprise me, but I genuinely hope that that is not the case. However, if it were, most people reflect on that and go, yeah, taking my own life would have been stupid. And again, this is a person that has already transitioned that's like, hmm, yeah, suicide, that was a perfectly reasonable proposition for me to be in the state that I was in back then. But again, we're supposed to be listening to this person on advice for how we should enact this policy in our state. Apparently, this is someone who we deem emotionally stable enough to give us advice on such things. In fact, like I said, the title of that article is Listen to One of These Kids. But another thing that I would point out here is this is basically the equivalent of, well, I'll hold my breath, because this is the thing that usually gets brought up in debates about transgenderism. It's the I'll hold my breath thing. You either do what I say and do what I want, or else I'm going to kill myself. And what astounds me about this is this is the oldest play in the teenage playbook. Now, usually it does not rise the levels of killing yourself, but teenagers are constantly playing this war of attrition with their parents. That's what teenagers do. That's what children do in general, but especially teenagers. They treat every little problem like it's the biggest problem in the world because they're young and dumb and don't know any better. And I say this as someone who did this quite a bit as a teenager. I'm a former teenager myself. But they will proposition their parents and basically threaten them to harm themselves unless you give me what I want, unless you affirm what I believe about myself. First of all, it's ridiculously immature, and it's not a healthy way to have any kind of discussion. When the, the other option is, I'll kill myself if you refuse to agree with me, that's not a person that is operating in good faith. And again, I'm not trying to make light of this. I think this is a very serious issue. And I think that we should do everything we can to prevent suicides amongst trans people. It's just that the studies have shown, the data has shown over and over again, that transitioning them does nothing for that. Just like a regular kid throwing a temper tantrum and saying, I'll hold my breath until you give me what I want. Just like that, you can't give in because it does no good in the long run. It does not prevent these suicides. When you do so, that person is either lying and is not really contemplating killing themselves or if they are, then giving them what they want and giving in and giving them the transition surgery isn't going to do anything to change that anyway. All you're doing is creating even more problems for them in other areas, such as the, the increase in things like heart attacks, stroke, cancers, other things that we've talked about earlier on this evening. That's all it does. And if this is the case, if you are, as you said in that clip, in that little excerpt from the article, if you were a woman with a plan and determined and that you were going to do whatever you want, okay, that's fine. Wait till you're 18. That's all the Alabama law says. Well, again, 18 would be my preference. 19. Wait until you're 19 to do it. If you're that determined, if you are that absolutely dead set upon doing that, okay, wait till you're 19. And if you are, we're not going to stop you. That's all this law says. And so it's a really, really crappy argument on that side 
because first of all, it's it's woefully immature. I mean, almost toddler levels of immaturity. And then the second half of that was like, well, I was determined to do it. Okay, then why would you not be determined to do it when you're 19? Just wait. I know the automatic reaction by a kid when you tell them to wait for something is, well, I don't want to, but that's not a good reason not to wait for it. They would say the same thing about drinking or smoking or getting a tattoo or joining the army or, you know, a number of other things that they can do once they turn 18. But the fact that a child is impatient is not a good excuse for giving them whatever they want. It never works out well when that happens. And another thing that I would ask, since we are primarily focused on the media in this Daily Dose of Stupid because they are acting stupid, the main thing that I would like to ask you is, where are all of AILC.com's exposés and pieces talking about the people that have been harmed by this? Because I've actually met several of them. I've done some work with the Compassion Coalition. I've, I've met some friends that sort of specialize in this area. I noticed that AIL.com didn't, you know, interview one of them. Now, AIL.com interviewed, at least based on the articles I read, at the very least two or three of these transgender individuals and featured them prominently. The Associated Press did that once. Uh, NPR has done that before. We also saw Alabama Political Reporter feature one of them prominently. I don't see the media clamoring to talk to the people who transitioned when they were younger and ruined their lives because of it and now wish that they could go back to their original gender with the body they originally had. And it's not because those people don't exist because I've met them myself. They're really not that hard to find. I mean, for everyone that you have like this, you're going to have just as many on the other side that regret doing so, especially since 80 to 95% of all children that are trans when their kids grow out of it by the time they reach young adulthood if they aren't transitioned physically. And so because of that, that's also, even though it's less obvious, that's another form of bias. You're not seeing them play the emotional card or trying to get them, hey, listen to this kid who ruined their life by transitioning. AL.com doesn't do that. A Alabama Political Reporter doesn't do that. That is part of the bias. And it's just as underhand as the other part. But the reason that this is so important, the reason that we have to keep our eye on the ball on this is because it does not take long for the media to flip people on things. We've seen how, how quickly it happened with Obergefell. You know, granted, that was a much slower burn. But when it came to homosexuality, it was really about the mid-ish 90s up until the presidency of Barack Obama around 2012 when he started his second term that really started to become more acceptable. And then, of course, we had the famous Obergefell case. But that's really not that long a time, and a lot of that had to do with the media changing certain things. You had things like people being featured more prominently in sitcoms and in culture, and them changing the language, changing homosexuality to an alternative lifestyle, things like that. Uh, catchy slogans like love wins and painting everything with rainbows as opposed to, you know, talking about AIDS and the other side effects that tend to come with homosexuality. Not always, but occasionally. And they'll do the same thing here because it's all about a political agenda. It's all about destroying the American family. That is the end goal, make no mistake. And they already won on the hill of homosexuality. Now the reason that they're not focused on it that much anymore is because they got a new hill to conquer. And if they can break down gender and gender roles, there is no way for the American family to survive that. You know, the American family can still 
it's it's degraded by and mocked by, but can still remain fairly strong in the wake of, you know, down the street having a, a gay couple living in the house next to them. Like that that is a possibility. It makes it a little harder, but ultimately it's not as big a threat as the transgender thing. If society as a whole no longer acknowledges traditional gender roles at all, it becomes harder to keep that family unit intact. And that's what this has ultimately always been about. Speaking of that, let's go to the chaplain's report. In 1775, the Continental Congress created the Chaplain Corps. Under the command of General George Washington, each soldier was required to attend worship service every Sunday. While other armies advanced on their feet, Washington's troops advanced on their knees. It's time for The Chaplain's Report with Caleb Colquitt on tactics. Our Chaplain's Report today comes from the book of Genesis. And when we're in tumultuous times like this, whenever you find yourself in a storm, whenever society is trying to alter everything, that's the reason we have the scripture. You go back to the basics, back to the origin, that's your anchor. That's your point zero zero. That's how you steady yourself and get your bearings. And I think that it's time for us to go back to that and, and go back to the very origin of Scripture itself. Let's go back all the way to the beginning. Genesis 1.1, or sorry, Genesis 1.26 through 27. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the livestock and over the earth and over every crawling thing that crawls on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. All right, so we learn two things about the nature of humankind from that verse. First, we are made in God's image. Because we are made in God's image, we have dominion over every creature that God made that is not made in God's image. Cattle, birds, etc., etc., so that's the first thing we learn about humanity. When we understand what the biblical worldview of what is a human and what a human is supposed to be, that's the first thing we're supposed to understand is not only are we creatures that God made, but we are creatures that God made specifically for a purpose, and he did so by making us in his image. We are wrought in the image of God. That's the first thing, and it's first because it's the most important. But what's the second assertion he makes? He created them male and female. He didn't just create man. I mean, obviously he created man first, but he didn't just create man. He created man and then he created woman. And so the very second thing that we learn about humanity in the entire Bible, and by extension the history of the entire human race, is that we're separated into two genders, male and female. And this is not a trivial matter, and I think part of the reason that God includes this and includes it so emphatically is because he knew that times like this would happen. And by the way, this is not necessarily a new thing. There have been other societies that became weirdly obsessed with homosexuality and androgyny. And so this is really just a greatest hits album from hell. That's, that's the best, best way to describe it, is we're not really dealing with a new problem. We're dealing with a new manifestation of an old problem. And this is something that has always been an issue. Because other than being made in the image of God, which granted that's been attacked quite a bit in society as well, 
the thing that we know most about ourselves is that we're either male or female. It's the very first thing that somebody notices when you're born. Oh, is, do we have a boy or do we have a girl? Oh, looks like we have a girl. Once they take that away, they can take anything away. That's the issue here. You see, to have rights, they have to come from God. The left tends to not believe this. They think that rights are given to you by the government, which defeats the purpose of having rights. If the government is what bestows rights upon you, then you don't actually have rights. You have a set of privileges that government gives to you and can take away from you at any time. The whole purpose of rights is that they're inalienable. This is what our founders believed. And how do we know that they are inalienable? What gives us the ability to say to other people, no, I don't care what you want. I have the right given to me. Well, it's that it is something that is inborn, in other words, part of you from creation, and it is given to you by God. See, the left has been attacking this for years, and this is one of the ways to do that. They've attacked the first assertion that you are a being that is created in God's image, and because of that, that comes with certain rights and certain responsibilities that coincide with one another to live and exist. That's what it means to be a human being. But if they can get you to reject the second assertion that the Bible makes, that mankind is separated into two genders, male and female, they can get you to deny pretty much anything. It's one of the most fundamental things about being a human, is that you know you're either a man or a woman. And once they have robbed you of that, once they can get you to say, no, I'm really a woman, or no, that person who obviously is a dude is really a woman, once they can get you to say that, they can get you to say anything. And that's the point. George Orwell, 1984. Do you remember what the assertion was that they forced Wilson, the main character, to make at the end of the book to, to change him from being the rebellious spirit who rebelled against the party to being one of them? You remember what they had to, they made him say? Two plus two equals five. Why did they make him say that? What was so important about getting him to say, yes, I agree, 2 plus 2 equals 5? Because the point of that whole thing was if we can get you to say that 2 plus 2 equals 5, there is literally no idea we can't insert into you and force you to believe. Once you say that, once you have abandoned any kind of objectivity, any kind of moral standard, any belief in truth other than the truth of what we tell you is truth, then we can make you do anything. Once that happens, you're just another cog in the machine. And that's exactly why they are trying to get you to deny the most basic part of your existence. One, that you're created in the image of a creator. And two, that you're either a male or a female. Once they can get you to abandon that, they can get you to abandon anything else. Once you have thrown that away, then it doesn't matter what it is. They can insert it into you and make you believe it and, and make you say and actually think that it is true. That's the reason this battle is so important. You know, I actually got into a debate with somebody earlier about the Satan shoe. You may remember that there was a, a rapper who is a gay guy and he did a music video about him like pole dancing into hell and giving Satan a lap dance. No, I'm, I'm dead serious. This is actually going on. In it. And to commemorate this, he repurposed a shoe and uh, put satanic symbols on it and it's like made with real human blood and he made 666 out. so all this ridiculous satanic stuff 
And I do think that it's important to, to point out evil when we see it. But the truth is, our job is not as simple as that most of the time. I mean, yeah, a guy putting satanic symbols on a shoe and, and you know, symbolically giving Satan a lap dance, it's pretty easy to tell that that's evil. Like, we're not really breaking new ground, pointing at that going, hey, that's not good. Most of the average people can see that that's evil. And so I'm not saying that we don't do that because I think it's I, actually I was on the side of saying that it is correct to bring up when evil happens, no matter when it happens. I'm just saying with that one, it's a lot more obvious. You see, this stuff is the stuff that's more subtle. Granted, this isn't a real subtle example of it, but it's important for us to fight these battles because if they can get society as a whole to agree that somebody that was born with male parts and has XY chromosomes in literally every cell of his body and look at that and go, yep, that's a woman and look how brave and beautiful she is. Well, then we've lost the battle because then they can convince them to think anything. They can convince them to think that God isn't real or that God is, I don't know, some kind of lesbian spiritual overlord like they, they can or a, a giant space beaver like they can make them believe anything no matter how ridiculous or blasphemous it is at that point and that's why it's important that we do not lose this fight because if we lose the fight on people being able to assert basic and very obvious truths then we won't be able to win any other battle ever again and i think the reason that we also have to keep this in mind is it's important to inform people when we do have them ask questions about this is we have to ask the question of why why did god make us this way because if we can answer that question then gender isn't just this arbitrary thing that god kind of sprung on us and then it's not just a religious idea well there's countless reasons and i could probably do an entire chaplain's report just on those but the fact that God intentionally made us into men and women, that's not an arbitrary thing. Why did God choose to do that? Because he could have made us any way he wanted. He's God. He's all-powerful. He could have made us in any way. He could have made it to where we didn't have to have sex to reproduce, that you know we, we wouldn't be separated into genders. He could have made it to where... Uh, we reproduce in a way that, you know, you don't have to have two separate genders, that we're all the same and you can just mix our DNA uh, regardless of who we are and then we can create offspring. He could have created us basically like giant cells that we just, you know, eat enough and have enough energy and then we divide into two separate parts. Like, he could have made us any way he wanted. Why did he choose a system where half of us are men, half of us are women, and we have to enter into a relationship with one another to be able to procreate. I think it's fairly obvious, isn't it? If you understand the first assertion, you understand the second. God made us in his image. And he made us in his image so that he could love us and that we could love him. That's our purpose. And what helps us in doing that is having a partner. In the same way that, I mean, it's what's asserted in Ephesians 5. It's what's asserted really all throughout the scripture, but especially in the New Testament, with the analogy of the bride in Christ. But this is all through the Old Testament, too. I'm reading through the Minor Prophets right now. Hosea is a great example of this. Uh, Ezekiel does this quite a bit, too, referring to God's people as being an adulterous wife 
because they have gone off and worshipped other gods. In the New Testament, Christ is the husband of the church, and men are supposed to love their wives just like Christ loved the church, and women are supposed to love their husbands and respect him and submit to their authority just like the church is supposed to do the same thing with Jesus. It's the same kind of relationship. So the whole purpose of having these relationships in this family structure, where two people of opposite genders come together, put aside their differences, and, and work and complement one another's strengths, and then eventually procreate to have children to where there is a father and son or a father and daughter or you know multiple occasions of both. The fact that those roles are different and complementary, they're all supposed to teach us about our relationship with God. That's the purpose of it all. And once you can explain that to people, that this is intentional, that this wasn't just an accident or just God doing it on a whim without a plan for it, once you can get that across to a person, that's how you win the argument. You don't win it by just saying, and I know that most people don't do this anyway, but you don't win it just by saying, well, it's wrong, and that's the end of the story. Yes, it is wrong, but you have to explain why it is wrong. And more importantly, you have to explain why your view is correct, why God's intention for that is correct and good. And once people understand that, they're not going to buy in to the idea that men and women are just arbitrary constructs and interchangeable. Ultimately, when you boil it all down, all sin is a rejection of who you were meant to be. That's what transgenderism is. It's God saying, all right, you're a man. And then you saying to God, no, I don't like your decision. I'm going to make my own decision. I get to be my own God. I've decided I'm going to be a woman or vice versa. That's what all sin is. Because God intended every single one of us to conform to the image of his son. God desires all men to repent and to be saved. God wants all of us to be his. And that's the intention he had for each and every one of us when he made us. He didn't make any of us with the intention of us to rebel against him. He made all of us knowing that each one of us made in his image has the potential to be a son or a daughter to him. That's our purpose. And so regardless of what the sin is, whether it's transgenderism, whether it's homosexuality, whether it's lying, whether it's adultery, regardless, I mean, you could name off any sin in the Bible. Every single one of them is a sin because it is a rejection of who God made us to be. It is saying to God, no, I don't like your plan for me. I don't like the way that you made me. I'm going to do my own thing and, and lean on my own understanding. That's why this is so important, because just like every other sin, Transgenderism is a rejection of yourself on the fundamental level. Stay the course, friends. Thank you for listening to the Tactics Podcast. Tactics is a production of Not Ashamed Media. Any opinions expressed on this program are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of our business partners or sponsors. Graphics by Jessica Dawson. Video production by Jackson Dean. Broadcast studio provided by Faulkner University. Location studio provided by Delreda Church of Christ. Copyright 2021.